not his last name but a title this jesus is god's anointed king and he's presented as the king of the jews first of all but ultimately as the king of heaven and earth and if you've been with us i trust that you could walk through this uh, review on your own but first the first four chapters of matthew's uh, gospel his record of the good news he cites the credentials in the life of jesus that fulfill one old testament prophecy after another concerning god's god's king jesus is first of all a hebrew descendant of abraham and he is a royal descendant of david he was born of a virgin uh, the place of his birth in bethlehem the fleeing into egypt to escape herod's wrath the hometown of nazareth where he grew up the forerunner that came his older cousin by the name of john the baptist and even the the impeccable character of jesus displayed in the presence of the extended face-to-face temptation by the devil all of these are characteristics that fulfill prophecy concerning god's coming king so those first four chapters introduce us to his credentials to be the king and then matthew shifts in chapters 5 6 and 7 to giving us a sample of jesus teaching and preaching ministry when he was here on this earth in particular we have his sermon that we call today the sermon on the mount recorded in those three chapters and when jesus finished that preaching matthew records the people's response and the people remarked that he taught them as one having do you remember this as one having authority and that's what you would expect of a king you would expect that a king would speak with authority and that's exactly what the people sensed and then matthew shifts the focus again and in chapters 8 and 9 that we're in now in these weeks we have a sample of uh, his 10 uh, miracles 10 sample miracles i should say that that jesus performed we move from a sample of his preaching to a record of these miracles if you were not here with us for either of the previous messages in this chapter i do want to encourage you to just write that right somewhere around uh, chapter 8 put chapters 8 and 9 uh, 10 sample miracles and the first message we tried to identify all 10 of them and then we noted that you can kind of group those miracles into four different categories the miracles together demonstrate that jesus has authority over sickness that's one of the categories of jesus healing people of um, significant physical infirmities but jesus also has authority over the natural world we're going to explore that together this morning he says to winds and waves be still and they obey him he has authority over the spirit world of demons again by spoken word he dismisses demon possession and he has authority over death itself the miracles are still making this same point they, they demonstrate that jesus has authority again authority that you would imagine a king god's king in particular would have 
And he has authority over, in these chapters, he has authority over sin and all of its consequences. He has the authority to dismiss sin like he can dismiss a disease and dismiss sin like he can dismiss demons and dismiss sin like he can say, be still and the winds and waves are still. He can dismiss sin like he can dismiss death and say, rise up and walk. He has authority over each of those categories and over the whole package of sin and its consequences. And so the two-part message of, of these chapters, again, as you take them as one unit, is believe in him and follow him. If, in fact, you believe what the miracles are proclaiming about his identity and his authority, if you believe that someone with all authority like this has been demonstrated is God's anointed king, then follow him as a loyal subject of the king of kings and lord of lords. And last time, we began in verse number 19 with the profession of a couple of men that are ready to do that. They say, that's what I'm ready to do. I will follow him. And notice verse 19, the exact word is used. A certain scribe came and said unto him, Master, I will do what? I'll follow thee whithersoever thou goest. So, so this man is professing, I will follow you, Jesus. I will follow you anywhere. Unreserved commitment. No boundaries. Anywhere you tell me, anywhere you lead, that's where I will go. And then there is, to our minds, a major plot twist. Because instead of Jesus responding with words of thanks and congratulations, again, if somebody said to us, that to us, young man, young lady, came up to us and said, I just want you to know that I've dedicated my life completely to the Lord. I'll go wherever he wants me to go. No boundaries, no reserve. We would say, way to go. You will never regret this. I am so glad for you. But Jesus responded with words of challenge. Look at verse 20. Jesus saith unto him, The foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. And you can see that he's saying, You might want to rethink your readiness to follow me. Because if you follow me, you could end up being deprived of some provisions that even animals have. And, and again, Jesus isn't saying that he spent every night under the stars with no friends to extend him hospitality. But again, he's saying he had no permanent residence. And even that, that, the typical animal has a place to call home. And he didn't. What if following the Lord means you end up deprived of some just basic aspects of life that people have come to regard as just normal, basic provisions. And Jesus responds to, the, again, that profession of surrender by saying, you better, you better rethink that. You, you better think about what it might cost you, what you might end up going without if you follow me. And then without any more development, he moves on to verse 21. Matthew does to the record of some interaction with another. And look at verse 21. Another of his disciples said unto him, Lord, suffer me first to go and bury my father. And the word that we said needs to be highlighted is that word first. The issue in that case is one of timing and by extension priority. I'm actually, 
I'm actually ready to go wherever you want me to go and do whatever you want me to do. I just need to take care of some family matters first. And again, without more detail that we wish we, you know, might have about the, the state of this man's dad and, and his life and his health. You know, is he like, has he already died and the funeral's about to happen? Or is it like it's just coming somewhere in the near future? We don't know that, but we do know without that detail that the point he's trying to highlight is that even the professed care for his dad in this case was an unworthy rival to true discipleship. And Jesus in verse 22, notice, said unto him, Follow me and let the dead bury their dead. And that, that first usage of the term dead has to be figurative because, and, and a play on words because physically dead people don't bury anyone. Again, what he's saying is those that are spiritually dead, those, those that are not regenerated, those that are not born again, those that are not my people, they don't have spiritual life. All right, Those kind of people put family relationships ahead of following me. But if you're truly my disciple, get your priorities straight. And there's going to be times where loyalty to Christ calls for actions that may look to others like indifference or disloyalty, even to ties of earthly family. Now, we don't know what became of those two professed followers because Matthew just moves on. We're, we're left with the impression that his telling them count the costs ended up deterring them. But we don't have all that. What we know is that there are some disciples that did continue to follow, even after that kind of probing. And if you'll look in verse number 23, they physically followed him, and we even have that exact expressions, that expression, they followed him into a ship. All right? And it's worth noting that those disciples that are mentioned in verse 23 that followed him into that ship are men like Peter and James and John and, and Peter's brother Andrew. And I want to have you turn back to chapter 4, right? It was a number of months ago, but we've already walked through some of their initial following. In Matthew chapter 4, I want us to see what, what we can learn about these men and their following. Notice in verse number 18, Jesus walking by the Sea of Galilee saw two brethren, Simon called Peter and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishers. And he saith unto them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And they straightway left their nets and followed him. And going on from thence, he saw two uh, other two brethren, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in a ship with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them, and they immediately left the ship and their father, and followed him. Now think about even the categories here. Jesus said to the one man, if you're going to follow me, think about this. Think about what you might go without. And he said to the other man, if you're going to follow me, it may mean leaving behind family 
to follow me with first-rate priority. Well, what happens to these guys? Well, think about, I mean, we read this, and, and some of you, when you think about fishing, it's a hobby, it's a recreation, you really enjoy it, but that's what it is. But for these men, that wasn't it. This was their what? Okay, this is their livelihood. And we've got four men that are named here. Okay, and their business, okay, their business is supporting these four heads of house. So they, they've got a fishing business that is big enough to support the four of them. And when Jesus said, follow me, what do we, what do we read about? We, we read in verse 20, and straightway they left their nets and followed him. And verse 22, and they immediately, all right, Lord, if you say that's what it means, we leave it now. And they not only left their business, but they also left who? Yeah, verse 23, they left the ship and their father and followed him. All right, so these men did what, what seemed the others that the Lord confronted weren't prepared to do. They said, Lord, if you call us to give up our livelihood, we'll do it. If it means leaving behind dad, we'll do it. We'll follow you. Now go back to chapter 8. They're willing to do what some others didn't. And verse 23, they follow the Lord into the ship. But verse 24, as we go on to read, we're told that that ship they followed the Lord into ends up in a storm. And behold, there arose a great tempest in the sea, insomuch that the ship was covered with the waves. And I'm going to stop the flow for just a minute and remind us of another observation from our overview. There's these ten miracles and the categories and so on. But when we overviewed those ten, we also noted that they are not in chronological order. So it's not like they just happen time sequence-wise, one through ten, in that order. They've been placed in the order they're in to make certain points. And so we've been trying to explore that. When we started, we could see common threads, remember, in, in the first three miracles. And again, if you have them noted there and maybe a heading, the first one was the healing of a leper. But you remember, leprosy, especially in that day, a leper would have been an outcast out in the community, having to call out unclean, unclean. The second was the healing of the centurion's servant, but it's the centurion that comes and, and appeals. And remember, a Roman, a Gentile, and a Roman soldier of all things would have been, again, somebody that the typical Jew didn't look, didn't look kindly on. And then Jesus went into the house of Peter's mother-in-law. And, and again, there was, even in the, in the Jewish culture, when you go right up to the temple, there's the court of the Gentiles, there's the court of women, but then there's the place that only men could go into. But Jesus went in and touched this lady. Then we, we saw that Jesus is willing, even with the neediest, the ones that society might kind of view as second rate, 
And, and you start to talk about a, a, a leper who's dirty in, in everyone's estimation. And Jesus, remember the theme of those? Jesus is able and he's willing to minister to even the neediest and meet their needs. So we saw that kind of connection. And when people come to now this last scene that we've looked at and the following and then this drama about the boat going into the, the, the ocean and, uh, and to the storm in the sea, the Sea of Galilee, not an ocean. Let me get that straight before somebody points it out to me. But they, uh, they're there. People wrestle with, okay, how, how do we see a connection? But with what we've already just started to see, I've been kind of starting to, to lead us in the way. I want you to see again the connection in rehearsing the flow. Verses 19 and 22, there's some disciples that say, I will follow you wherever. Just let me take care of another matter first. They give verbal testimony of a desire. But when they're challenged, they count the cost. They end up saying, ah, count me out. They never get past that threat of, of the potential deprivation. And honestly, there may be some young men here that would say, Pastor, I would give myself to full-time ministry, but I look and I wonder what it would mean for, you know, the kinds of cars I drive the rest of my life or the kind of place that I live in or don't live in. Or somebody that says, you know, I would, I would yield to whatever, but I don't know what it would mean about when I see my family or don't see my family and, and all of what might be involved in that. And, and there's some people that, that do that. Somebody, some young man may even say, I would, I would do that, but the girl that I'm interested in talking to and dating or whatever and considering, I'm just not sure that she's prepared to whatever. And am I prepared to lose her? If that's what it would mean. And, and, and he talks through all that. And, and there's people that, that wrestle with it. They make, a, they make a, a profession. They announce it to others. But when there's pushback and, and the thoughts of their own hearts, they end up backing down. But there are others that do follow. And they're willing to leave their fishing nets. And they're willing to leave their family. But in the course of truly following the Lord, discipleship and ministry takes them in the will of God into a storm. And a, and a place where circumstances are like wave after wave after wave of a storm that is flooding over their lives. They did follow. They left all. But now, after leaving and following, they're in a storm. And, and I'm skipping ahead just a bit to get more of the picture, but at the end of verse number 25, the circumstances made them feel like they were in danger of what? What do they say? His disciples came and woke him saying, Lord, save us. We what? We perish. I've taken the steps that I've taken because as best as I knew, I was following the Lord and, and there were some costs that I did expect. But what I'm in the middle of now is more than I anticipated. 
And, and someone starts to feel like this could end up doing me and my family in. We might sink. And in verse 26, their emotional state was what? He saith unto them, why are ye what? Why are ye fearful? And, and with more of that picture in mind, I do want to go back to verse 24 and, and know what state was Jesus in while all this is developing. They've, they've left and they followed. They're doing God's will as best as they know how, but they followed him. Now they're in a storm and the waves are overflowing them and, and they feel like this could be the end and they are scared to death. And while all of that's happening, Jesus at the end of verse 24 was what? He's asleep. And in this case, Jesus was literally physically, bodily asleep. But brethren, isn't that true that sometimes when we get into fearful circumstances, especially again, I mean, if it's, it's one thing if I just flat out disobeyed God and his word, you know, I knew I was doing it when I did it. But now I, I, and I've disobeyed him and now all this is coming. It's like, well, what did you expect? I knew. I should have expected this. But what if it's not that way? What if it's I did what I did as best as I knew how, trying to follow God? And I was even prepared for some of it to cost me. But I never thought it would cost this much. I never saw this storm. I never saw these waves. And they just keep coming one after another. And we start to wonder how could he let this happen? I'm about to perish. My family is about to go under. Does he not care? Has he forgotten me? Is it like he's asleep? Does he really exist? Does he know I exist? Does he care? And none of us wants to say that to anybody else because of how bad it sounds. But internally, there's times where, what is going on? How could I get here in the middle of God's will? I don't get this. And the disciples were fearful. And it's worth noting what they did. They turned in the right direction. In verse 25, I know it's simple, but who did they turn to? The disciples came to him and awoke him, saying... What? Saying, Lord. And they, they, went to, they went to the right person. And they even called him by one of his rightful titles. They call him Lord. And they not only go to the right place in their fear, but they, they also appealed for the right thing. Again, verse 25, they said, Lord, do what? Lord, Lord save us, we perish. They're saying, we're, we, we're dead apart from you stepping in. Now again, these men, and I, I hearken back to Peter, James, John, and Andrew, at least those four, those men were well acquainted with the sea. They knew how to handle certain situations. But they are now in a setting that they know they can't handle. No matter how much experience they have managing boats on the sea, this one is something that is completely over them. They can't handle it. It's God 
you got to do it or else. They turn to the right person and they make the right appeal. But brother, while they're saying the right things to the right person, the Lord knew something was still defective inside. Look at verse 26. He saith unto them, Why are ye so fearful? But then what? O ye of little, what? O ye of little faith. And brethren, you know that it's very possible to do the right thing. And, and to do it even perhaps communicating to others. Maybe you get the family together and say, we need to pray. Or maybe you call on extended family or you ask your church family to pray. You pray. And you say, let us pray. We need to pray about this. But even as we go to prayer to the right person and say the right thing, inside our hearts are still what? They're still fearful. And, and this is where sometimes, again, we go to prayer and we come out of a season of prayer even more worked up. I'm talking emotionally, anxiety. We're more distracted. We're all more overwhelmed than what we were before we even prayed. And what we need is we need sometimes a probing from the Lord. And the Lord's communication to them was asking them a question. And I know it's a simple one, but he just says to them, why are you so fearful? Why are you so afraid? And sometimes rather we need, to, that's what we need to face. We need to stop. And think about this. It's as if the Lord Jesus is saying, are, are you justified in feeling that way that you do? Is it really, listen, is it really right for you as a believer to live in the kind of fear and constant state of alarm? Are, are you justified in trying to do all the things that you're doing to try to deliver yourself from the storm? Why? What are you thinking? How'd you get there? And then he followed that question with a straightforward statement of fact. The problem is you guys are of so little faith. That's what he really fingers as the issue. And then without waiting for a reply from them, he just moves on to take care of the problem. He arose and he rebuked the winds and the sea. And there was a great calm. But all of that gave rise in verse 27 to the marveling of the disciples that is very thought-provoking. Because when they marvel, notice what they say. They say, what manner of man is this that even the winds and waves obey him? What, what, kind, what kind of man is this? I mean, you've never seen anything like what this man could do. And, and this is... What he wanted them, this is where he wanted their minds to go. Right? 
He wanted them to think about who he was. He wanted them to think about who was in that boat with him, that very boat, in that storm, right at that moment. Who was in that boat? Could they think about, could they think about the fact that this, look, the man who's in that boat is the man that can heal the sick and he can cast out demons and he can raise the dead. Do you not think I can handle wind and waves? I spoke this world into existence. Do you not think that I can handle this? Do you think that you could get in my will into a situation where you're following me and then I can't take care of the circumstances? And brethren, this is a big issue for us. We, we can talk about what God has done for others and, and rejoice in those testimonies. The most amazing thing is that we can even talk about what we've seen God do in our own lives and in our families in the past. Right? I can rehearse God's deliverance a decade ago or two decades ago, but I get into the midst of a new storm and all of that is fresh and it's real right now. And I can, in the middle of that, lose complete sense of who he is. They, of course, are not questioning his humanity when they say, what manner of man is this? They've, they've just woken him out of sleep. That's what men do. They sleep. They never question that humanity. But, but they are saying, this is no ordinary man. And there's times that we really need to walk through all of that ourselves. What kind of person is this Jesus whom I'm following? And I could talk through the fact that he's the eternal son of God that left heaven, took on the form of a baby in, in a virgin's womb and born in a stable and lived the life of a man for 33 and a half years. And I could talk more about what he preached and what he did and the kind of testimony that he left and obviously what he did on the cross ultimately. And he rose from the grave to demonstrate that he is the son of God. He's the only savior. What I really need to get down to is what does that mean for me in the middle of the storm that I'm in? And if you're following him as a disciple, you are serving, maybe not in full-time vocational ministry, but, but all true followers serve. And brethren, in the course of whatever that serving and following in his will leads you into, there's times that you have to stop and in the middle of those storms say, I need to remember who this man is that I'm following. We've, on some Wednesday nights about a month ago, considered the testimony of Job. And even if you weren't here, you are familiar with Job's testimony. Job was the godliest man of his day. And, and, and we aren't guessing at that because God says it. God says to the devil, in fact, twice. 
have you concerted my servant Job that there is none like him? There's no one who fears me like Job does. But Job faces suffering that was like wave after wave after wave overwhelming the boat of his life. And when he did, we read that he grieved, but he also worshipped. And Satan made another accusation against Job to God. Said, well, he only worships you because of how much you've blessed him. And even now, you've only let me take his possessions. You haven't let me touch his life. And, and God let Satan afflict Job personally. And again, Job initially did not sin with his mouth. But then Job sat for days, seven days, without talking. And... When he started to talk, there was a pretty massive, woe is me. <laughs> and he says, woe is the day I was born. How did you let me live knowing I was going to be this miserable? And, and he turned to questioning God. And he's like, what's the reason for, there's, there's no reason for this in my life. I look at others who are wicked and they're getting away with it. And people are saying that I have some sudden uh, uh, secret sin that's hidden in my life. And, and, you and he says to God, God, you and I both know that's not the case. Where are you? And you remember in chapter 23, he's like, I, I go forward and you're not there. I go to the left and you're not there. On the right, I go backward. God, I can't find where you are in my life right now. And he actually challenges God. To show up in the courtroom. I'll come before your bar. He's talking about the judgment bar. And he's like, God, you be the prosecutor and go ahead and bring your case against me and, and lay it out there. And I'm prepared to defend it. I at least want to hear what you're saying about me. And when Job was all done and God starts talking, God ends up saying about Job to Job's friends. That Job was right. There's nothing in his life that is some hidden secret sin that brought on this. But he still has a ministry to have to Job. And God ends up asking Job a series of questions. And he says, Job, where were you when I formed the earth? Where were you when I discovered the waters of the deep? Where were you when I made the mountains? And Job, where were you when I put all those stars up there in the sky? And when I grouped some of them in, in certain constellations? And they actually named some of them. And we're still using some of the names today. Where were you, Job, when I filled the sea with that great monster Leviathan? Where were you when I did all of that? Then we looked and we counted. It's 81, 82, some questions. That God asked Job in rapid fire. And Job didn't have a single answer for any of those 80 plus questions. And all of that was designed for Job to remember that Job is a man. And that God is God. And that as a man, Job can completely trust the God who made all of that and who sustains all of it and the God who made Job.
and the God who is over all the winds and the waves in the circumstances surrounding Job's life. Who is this Jesus that you're following? And is there any limitation to his power? Are there any good reasons for you and I to be living fearful and in a state of alarm? Is there any good reason for going into prayer and coming out more anxious than I went in? As I'm wrestling with all of that, I need to ask again, who is this that I'm praying to? What do I know him to be? What do I know about even his trustworthiness to care for me in the midst of this storm that I've entered into in the course of following him? And the message is the same. It's believe in him and follow him. But in the storms, in the storms, in the new ones, in the one you're in right now, in the one that will come. Keep believing and keep following because you've rehearsed just exactly who it is that's in that storm with you. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? And everyone this morning perhaps has a circumstantial storm of some variety. You might say, I know that this one isn't huge, but I do feel it pretty keenly right now. Or you may say, I've had some in the past, but this one is incredible. I never thought it'd be like this. I'd feel like this. And some people around you may know some of it. There may be things that you just could not hardly articulate. Maybe the combination of physical dynamics, relational dynamics, spiritual things. Some can be seen. Some are only felt and known by you.